Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Mike Krieger, co-founder of the photo sharing app Instagram. Instagram was released through Apple's App Store in October 2010 and reached 1 million users in just three months. Facebook acquired Instagram in 2012 for $1 billion. Mike and his partner, Kevin Sistrom, are both graduates of Stanford University. Mike graduated in 2008. He is originally from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Welcome. Thank you. I want to start with a project that you worked on when you were a student at Stanford. It was a photo sharing project, coincidentally, and it elegantly foreshadows what you developed with Instagram. Can you tell us about that? Sure. I was taking this class uh, with BJ Fogg, who's a professor there. And the purpose of the class was try to create behavior change through technology. And uh, one of the things we got interested in was seasonal affective disorder. My sister was going to school at Chicago. And, you know, moving from Sao Paulo, it's not the sunniest state in the world, but it's pretty sunny to Chicago with its pretty dreary winters. It was a tough adjustment for her. I'd gotten her one of those uh, lamps that you can, you know, get you, ionizes the air and gives you some good ambient light. Um, but we made this app. It was called Send the Sunshine. It's kind of a proto-Instagram. And the idea was uh, people who were in, you know, since the hemispheres divide summer and winter, if you're in summer very sunny, you could hopefully send some sunshine uh, through images to friends that might be on the other, or friends or strangers on the other side of the world. Um, and we built it. This was pre-iPhone. So my prototype was made on a uh, Nokia, like the beginning of the smartphone, but it had a camera. And that was enough to, to prototype the idea. Did you have any sense that, oh, yeah, this is photo? sharing is something that resonates with me and I'm going to put this in my back pocket for later or is it just one of those random coincidences? I think there was a theme throughout a lot of the projects I worked on. Another one, I was there when the iPhone got released and started taking off and that was the first year that they had the iPhone programming course at Stanford and uh, you had to do a final project. And mine was this uh, postcard sending app where you would send photos to each other. Uh, you would re- record an audio message and uh, the other receiver, you would have to shake it to like reveal the photo that you had been sent. I don't think it was a conscious process, but in looking back, you can definitely draw the line from a lot of projects that both me and Kevin were working on, and we kind of came together at the intersection of a lot of our interests. You and Kevin, though, the project that you started out with looks a lot different from the project you ended up with. The project you started out with was a a company called Bourbon. It was really Kevin's project initially. It was kind of like a a four-square knockoff. It was a location-based app. Can you talk about how you just jettisoned that and started on Instagram? Yeah, and the very first day I got to, you know, I left my job. I was going to go work with Kevin. And uh, we show up, you know, the office the first day. We go for a walk in South Park, which is this nice little French-style neighborhood in San Francisco. And Kevin was like, I think we should abandon bourbon. That was the first day of, like, I just left my job. What are we doing? And the feeling in my stomach was a really familiar one. It was the feeling I had when trying to work on my master's thesis at Stanford and not knowing what the project was. You know, we struggled for a while to find how to make bourbon appeal to people. And the instinct we had was just add more stuff, which is really normal. You know, it's like, I'll change for you. I'll do more. Um, but actually, the real change was getting rid of 99% of it and, and just keeping the, the raw elements of it. But really... Really, it took a long time for us to build sort of the sort of courage or the conviction that it was time to, you know, jettison a lot of it and move sideways. So you stripped down everything and you landed with just the the photo. Um, and bourbon, before that, the photo was an aside. Yeah. So how, did, how did you come to that? It was literally an attachment in the bourbon case. 
And even though bourbon was a mess and it had a lot of different features that we kept adding, the one thing people kept coming back to was the photo sharing piece. There's a screenshot of bourbon that I, I like showing every new employee to show kind of like the origin story. And it's one where um, my then girlfriend, now wife, Caitlin, was in Minneapolis. She used to do a lot of work for Target. And uh, it was my way of seeing what she was up to when she traveled. And that connection, there was something there, like Kevin likes to say, is there a there there? There was a, there was a there there uh, very early. And we said, all right, like, why don't we just take that part, which we love and people are doing, even though it's really hard to do in bourbon, mm-hmm. and make it so easy that people want to do it every day. Also, another decision that was made, even unconsciously, was making it solely an app and focusing on it for a mobile device versus building it for the web. Tell me about that. 2010, most of the photos you would see were ones that had been produced days ago, if not weeks ago, and then uploaded later when you'd like got finally found that camera cable and synced it to your computer. Um, we wanted to make things feel instantaneous and for you to really know what was going on right now or today even rather than a week ago. So that was a lot of where the desire to go mobile first and really stick with it. And to this day, we don't allow you to upload from the web. We could get more photos on Instagram that way, but I don't think they would be the right photos. Your partner, Kevin Sistrom, he has called you the soul of Instagram. And I was thinking, I'd like to be called the soul of something. (laughs) It it says a lot about uh, your relationship with him. And you kind of came together through happenstance. I mean, you were both part of the, the Stanford culture, but you came together accidentally almost. How did that happen? Yeah, the... Way was very much on the weekends going to coffee shops in San Francisco. This is before the kind of tech boom in the last four or five years. So that wasn't a completely obvious thing to do. You know, most people in the coffee shops were not working on tech at the time. And once you see somebody enough times and you, you we have some kind of connection, uh, we started, we struck up a conversation and he showed me bourbon and it was the first kind of new um, app that I'd gotten excited about in a really long time. He was working on bourbon, but uh, prior to that, he was an intern at Odeo, which became Twitter and Google, and then a, a startup Next Stop, um, which was sold to Facebook. So he was really in, you know, with the right people. And in a way, I feel like your story is one of knowing the right people, even though I appreciate what Instagram is. Um, I don't think you can downplay just the importance of having the right bedfellows with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think since, you know, we've grown and I've, there have been articles that have tried to look at, you know, how much of this is the Stanford connection? Where do you meet people through there? And there's definitely something to it. I remember um, in college, we both, Kevin and I, though in different years, were Mayfield Fellows, which is this entrepreneurship program where there's 12 of us a year. Um, you do three months of case studies, three months of an internship at a startup that you choose. or not you choose, you have to get a job there. <laughs> and then three months of debriefs. And uh, in the case study section, we'd be studying a you know case about Steve Blank, and then Steve Blank would be in the class talking to you. And that is very, very hard to replicate, even in any kind of sort of scalable way, but was something we were really lucky to have. In the early days, you had some trouble um, just personally in acquiring a visa. You're from uh, Brazil, and uh, you did not have your H-1B visa. Yeah, this is the biggest, uh, scariest thing in making the leap. Um, I knew I wanted to do a startup at some point, and uh, I knew I wanted to do something soon, but actually getting the visa, proving to the government that this new enterprise that we were trying to get off the ground was legitimate and had the ability to pay my salary, which is an important requirement of that, of the visa process, uh, took about three to four months, which, you know, when you're ready to make that leap was pretty painful because you're like, ah, like we want to get started. I want to get working on these. I have all these ideas. Um, but we were very much in the hands of, of, of waiting for the for the government decision. Ultimately, you did get your visa, and 
And you mentioned before that, you know, you had kind of photo sharing experience, but Kevin also uh, had his own uh, photo experience. I think he was like photo editor of his high school newspaper or something. Um, And he went to Florence, Italy for a semester at Stanford and, you know, held a Holga camera, which makes square pictures. Uh, But his girlfriend, his girlfriend, Nicole, had influence on him. Can you tell us how? Yeah, I think for uh, when we were really starting to work on on the product, which became Instagram, the feedback from Nicole was, oh, this seems like a a neat product, but I'm not going to use it because I don't think my photos look very good. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of an interesting little core uh, moment. You can break down actually two really important pieces of influence that Caitlin uh, and and Nicole, our respective partners, had. One was Nicole kind of saying like, ah, if the photos don't look good, I'm not going to share them. Um, And the other one was, was Caitlin actually helped us turn around the bourbon concept into Instagram. She... Uh, went somewhere and she said, like, I want to share a photo of where I am, but I don't want to tell you where I am. And uh, Bourbon was location first, then photo. And that helped us flip it and say, why don't we lead with the photo? You can optionally add a location, but that shouldn't be required. It's interesting. I don't take pictures on Instagram, but I'm a voyeur and I follow some of my friends. It's striking how much more interesting their life is than than mine. But, you know, I I think about kind of like the changing social dynamic in a way that Instagram has has catalyzed. I used to, uh, after college, I don't know why I was obsessed with like making a movie called Publicly Private, which made public all those private things that people did. Because you think you're doing something private, but really everybody around you is doing the same private thing. Right. And I feel like Instagram has unleashed that kind of, even though it's, as you said, it's well edited. Or Um, noticing that people who live very public lives have, you know, private moments that are, you know, what am I saying? Like, they're just like one of us. I remember uh, Lena Dunham. It was the morning after... Uh, maybe the Golden Globes. Um, I can't remember what awards show, but she shared a photo. She had just won. And she was like in her hotel room, just waking up and seeing it. So it's like yeah, bringing people into that in a way that, like, I think feels more controlled than like, mm-hmm. you know, like a paparazzi's camera. It's something that's very sort of in the person's hands. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Mike Krieger, co-founder of Instagram, the photo sharing app acquired by Facebook in 2012. Facebook acquired Instagram one and a half years after launch when the company had 30 million users. I don't think there was any other company at the time that grew so quickly and organically. Can you talk about kind of that element surprise even for you? Yeah, we was it was very rapid. We had about a million people sign up in the first three months, and every day was kind of a new record. And we'd look at each other like, "Is this the day where it's we stop growing, or is this something that's going to last?" Um, if I like you know, moments of of going back to seeing articles from us and launch, and the comment section of all of those is full of people being like, "Oh, it'll be gone in a month." This is just like some like very like quick fad. Um, but we saw that people would keep coming back. You know, it was striking to, you know, Facebook, uh, your acquirer, because they at the time were trying to build their own uh, mobile app with photos, but theirs was kind of kludgy or, or complicated because uh, they started out on, on the web. Um, can you talk about some of the early conversations that you and Kevin had with Mark, the founder? I think what he was really interested in early on was how we focused so much on that one piece of content type, which was photos, that it actually changed the behavior and the dynamic of the network. So something that um, Facebook has always had is this variety of things, like there are text updates and photos and events. and um, But it was also very nice to have the intentionality of a feed that is photo first. And um, I think it drew Mark to realize how engaging that was, that people were coming back every day, that they were producing content for Instagram and coming there more and more to find out what their friends were up to. You've really had a charmed existence. Like, was there anything that was harder for you than you thought? 
all of the scaling part was really hard. I mean, and I think there's a way of talking about it without getting too technical, but... Um, yeah, I mean, because your experience is the coding and the engineering, and we all take that for granted. We were able to keep the site up for a lot of our early few years, mostly because a lot of good technology had been created like right before we, we, we came out. And um, it actually made it hard to recruit engineers because they would be like, what am I going to do? Like, everything is just working and your product looks done. And one of the hardest things is convincing people. Um, it sounds like it's easy, but it's actually really hard that to, you know, hitch their trailer to your wagon or whatever and like take that crazy ride with you. Um, and we had a lot of trouble in the early days. There's a Quora thread on like, did you ever turn down a job at Instagram? And there's all these people that legitimately were like, hey, come join. And they're like, I don't know, it's just photos. I want to talk about uh, raising capital for a moment. Kevin had started with his bur- with the company Bourbon, uh, and his initial investors included Andreessen Horowitz. When you and he decided to switch to Instagram, you kind of had a hiccup moment with them because they were funding a competitor of Instagram, or what looked to be a competitor, Pick Please. Um, and maybe the communication wasn't the best, um, but they chose to invest in Pick Please versus Instagram. Can you talk about that that moment? At the time, it felt like, oh, my God, like, why didn't they choose us? Like, mm-hmm. um, and one, it's very, I mean, at the time, it was just me and Kevin, basically. There was no other team. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think, pretty easy to think, oh, it's the world against us, which is actually pretty helpful, I think, in building your company because it gives you that real sense of purpose. Um, but uh, I think this is chalk that one up, I think, to communication that could have gone better. They, they wear a moral cloak when saying, well, we had to go with them. But they could have also gone with you since their investment in you was before the other company's investment. And they could have easily said that to the other company. So my view of the situation was that they just thought the other company would be more successful. Sorry. You could say, I mean, we're two guys, you know, with no track record trying to get this thing off the ground. And, you know, we... Uh, yeah, there were early signs that I think were really promising, like people were really taking up uh, and starting to use Instagram, but it's so hard to predict. I mean, again, like you go back and the amount of probably somewhat healthy skepticism early on was was really strong. When I first learned about Instagram, I was like, oh, yeah, this is just Twitter with photos. You know, I want to talk about Twitter for a moment because Jack Dorsey uh, was a former boss, like a mentor of sorts almost to Kevin. And he offered to buy Instagram. And, you know, Kevin and, and you ultimately decided to, you know, raise venture capital instead. Can you talk to us about that cobweb of conversations in that, you know, three-month period. It wasn't even three months. But. It was really rapid. We were also building and launching our Android app. So me living on the engineering side, that was, you know, I was looking at the fundraising as something we just had to get done to move on to the next step and keep going. Meanwhile, focusing on launching our basically our biggest launch ever, which was going to this new platform that literally every time I stood up in front of an audience, somebody would raise their hand and be like, when's the Android app coming? Imagine me pretty sleep deprived with a team of two other engineers working on Android. Um, and Kevin, meanwhile, was fundraising. So there was, you know, not a lot of sleep, but we were just trying to like, get the company ready for the next phase of growth. And uh, what resonated ultimately about Facebook is we'd get to grow this thing independently. And also, um, not that this was the the reason for your decision, but Jack had offered to Kevin uh, five, roughly $500 million, not in cash. Then you raise venture capital, which valued the company at $500 million, And two minutes later, Facebook buys you for double that. Uh, so there was, you know, that valuation component as well, which, of course, I don't blame you for. Right, so. for sure. There's a lot 
of factors that go into that, right? It's there's there's definitely a moment where you have to say, all right, we have to seriously consider this and then think about what the trade-offs should be in terms of control and the future and 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 all those different elements for sure. Yeah, I, I was struck how uh, you still raised that that venture round even though a week later you sold it to Facebook. What was your psychology around that? I think ultimately it was realizing that the Valley is a very small place. And while I'm sure we could have found some way of backing out of the round that we were raising, I mean, the money wasn't uh, in the bank yet. Um, you know, life is long and the Valley is a small place. And it meant more that we were kind of true to our word than trying to like maximize in the short term there. People talk today, oh, do you wish that, you know, you waited and sold the company for 20 times, you know, what you sold it for. But I mean, is that the type of is that the way you want to live? Yeah. I read a lot of science fiction, so like time travel and like the impossibility of realizing what one event has to do with the future is something I think a lot about. And, you know, so much of our growth came from having the resources of saying, hey, our engineering team is six people. It really should be about 60 people yesterday. So let's, you know, hire in from Facebook. Let's take some of their best folks and move them over. And that was so key because we had struggled for years to actually hire out a team um, as quickly as we needed to. You're now a company of over 200 people, but you know when you sold to Facebook, you were only 13 of you, uh, and before that, it was just the two of you. Like, can you talk about what that dynamic was like when it was just the two of you? It's interesting in the early days because you don't have data to make your decision. You're just sitting next to somebody, and you kind of have to trust that you're making the right decision and run ahead. A phrase that we used that we learned actually in the Mayfield Fellows Program was. Uh, you may not be right, but at least don't be confused. So mm-hmm. the worst thing, the thing that will sink you is indecision. And even when we like made the change and said, like, we are ditching bourbon and we are doing Instagram, I, my suggestion was like, Kevin, why don't I work on that one and you work on the photos one and we can come back in a week and show what we learned. And he's like, no, like, we may not be right, but let's not be confused. Like, we mm-hmm. got to focus on one thing. And I appreciate he said that because it's true, but there's no way you're going to be able to put a number on, you know, is this the right decision until much, much, much later. This might seem like a distasteful question, but, you know, here you are, a 20-something kid who seems to have come from, you know, like an upper middle class background. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you have earned hundreds of millions of dollars for for yourself. That's a stark change that it's like a bomb went off in a good way. Um, how, how do you navigate the psychology of that? Yeah, I think it's been a few phases. It's overwhelming and crazy and like a little hard to grok from any kind of, you know, real like holistic view. But um, the first year was not doing anything differently at all. And then I think incorporating the changes that you want to incorporate your life kind of slowly. Um, for Caitlin and I, it's like we love to travel. So getting to go to Iceland and seeing the crazy landscapes of Iceland was like really transformative and really special. Um, but I, it's a cliche, but it really, I don't think money can really change you as much as just amplify the things that are kind of in you. And in our case, I think that's meant travel, getting really interested in philanthropy and trying to understand what that role plays, the role that plays in our life. Um, For other people, it's, you know, I'm not going to judge, but like very different decisions that they might make. Certainly, you had a fast and furious existence for, you know, a year and a half between when you launched on Apple's App Store to being acquired by Facebook. But I want to talk about your personal life during this period as well, because that was also kind of fast and furious. You met your now wife, Caitlin Trigger. How did you meet? 
We met at a housewarming party. Uh, we had kind of seen each other before, but this time we actually uh, struck up a conversation and uh, bonded over our shared love of the band Beirut. And uh, I taught her half of the song Postcards from Italy on the ukulele, and I promised to teach her the other half if she'd go on a date with me, which I, I've, I've talked to friends since then, and uh, we have come to the conclusion, and there's probably some evolutionary reason, that we were universally not people who were particularly like amazing at flirting or, you know, but there was a moment of inspiration, a really critical moment in our lives when we met our significant other. So that was that was my lightning moment. <laughs> and it would have been very difficult to get through those that year and a half um, without that kind of support, because very quickly, you know, people talk about building startup being hard work and it is. But it's until you launch, it's hard work that you're in control over. But everything changes when you launch, especially when you have success or you gain traction, because all of a sudden your schedule is entirely dependent on what's happening out in the world. We were, we would wake up every morning at three in the morning because that's when Japan would start using Instagram. And we were big in Japan in our first month. And all the all our phone alerts would start going off because the site was too slow. Boom, straight out of bed. To this day, I can't actually listen to the uh, tritone ring on uh, iPhone without having like a stress reaction because that would wake me up middle of the night, jump on a laptop, you know, Skype with Kevin and try to fix the site. You allude to Caitlin's support through this period. It's interesting, Caitlin uh, spent a lot of her time growing up in China uh, because her father uh, was a guitar player, worked for the State Department teaching the Chinese students guitar. And so it was just so elegant that you happen to woo her with a guitar. Exactly. Um, There's definitely a connection. I think music has run through her family for sure. You mentioned Japan before as being uh, this uh, this important tastemaker in a way. And it occurred to me that Japan's design uh, aesthetic is, is very simple. And I wonder if the simplicity of the app kind of resonated with the Japanese. I think there was a couple of things. One was we built the app from day one to not require a lot of language to use. So um, we tried not to use button labels. We tried to use icons when possible. We tried to make the design self-explanatory. And I think what worked was they were looking for something to let them share their lives in a way that they felt a lot of control over. The privacy model of Instagram is very easy to understand, um, but so much fun to see all of a sudden all these photos from Japan come in and a uh, very, very early person joined. His name was Koji. He actually helped us translate into Japanese. And I remember when the earthquake happened, he was able to share his life about what was going on. And uh, there's this connection with this person I've never, ever met, but he's over in Japan and living his life. And there's some real really intense connection there. Were there other uh, kind of key people or events that really caused an escalation in penetration or in, in users? I think the the biggest one is very much the Android launch. And I think I see that as the turning point where we went from something that was iPhone only US specific to something that could truly be international. You know, over 65% of people use Instagram from outside the US now, which mm -hmm. is it creates a bunch of interesting challenges too, right? Like how do you make sure that your app is working well in Brazil? Well, I can go visit home, but you know, in Scandinavia, in Japan, in Russia, all these different places. Do you notice a difference in the type or quality of pictures that people might take from country to country? Like what, what are some cultural characteristics. We yeah, we love looking at that. I remember when we finally had a data team for the first time, we're like, what What does this look like if you cut it by country? And some of them are pretty expected, like Brazilians uh, have a much higher selfie percentage and a lot more photos of folks uh, with each other, which I think just I'll ascribe to our general like social you know, happiness. 
Um, definitely a lot more landscapes in Europe that we found. Um, Japan has probably, and this is not a statistically significant change, but a told, purely anecdotal, but like a higher prevalence of pet accounts. So the most famous hedgehog on Instagram was in Japan. It's, what about New Yorkers or New uh, Yorkers? It's a good question about New Yorkers. I was actually just watching a, a highlight reel, like what are some recent videos taken in New York? And what I like in, is is the collision between the tourism and then the folks who live here. So it's a mixture of hey, like I'm at CrossFit because that's what I do every morning to, oh my God, the Empire State Building. How about your Instagram account? It's definitely changed. I was looking through my early early Instagram photos and there's sort of this change of um, just being more visible. And I think that definitely leads to some self-editing for sure. Whereas back then I was like, oh, here's my apartment. Here's my dog. Here's my then girlfriend. Here are my parents. And now I'm like, oh, like there's just more visibility. And I think I'm a lot more careful about what I share. Um, but recently I've been playing around with, I have a second account, secret account. And uh, that's been a fun one where I can take kind of like ugly photos, but they're ugly photos that represent some kind of like behind the scenes and, you know, my family and Caitlin and Kevin can comment on those. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Mike Krieger, co-founder of Instagram, the photo sharing app acquired by Facebook in 2012. You are from Brazil. Where are your ancestors from? Ah, so my uh, dad's side came from Poland um, and my mom's side came from Italy. How would your parents describe you? Oh, interesting. I think I was an intense kid. I think I, I loved reading, didn't have a ton of friends, had a few very intense friendships, uh, would spend my afternoons, you know, nerding out, reading, spending a lot of time on the computer. My dad brought a computer home when I was five or six years old. And since then, there's probably not been a day, it's maybe a sad admission that I haven't spent <laughs> at least a couple hours, uh, you know, messing around with stuff. You know, you talk about being glued to the computer uh, since you were five or six. During high school, uh, you worked on a computer project uh, teaching employees from your high school, actually, the maintenance workers. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there was a community service requirement at my school. And the project I chose was uh, one where you would stay after school and help um, the maintenance workers at the school and the kitchen staff, whoever wanted to sign up, to use a computer. And I had so many experiences of bringing people online for the first time, having them sign up for an email account, trying to explain to people what a CAPTCHA is, right? They've they've barely a seen captcha? it. A CAPTCHA is that little, like, the uh, type in, like, some letters that are kind of scrambled up to prove that you're a human and not a robot. How do you explain to them that not only are they online, but also spammers are online and we have to defend against spammers, and so we have to make their life more inconvenient? Um, a lot of concepts that I took for granted growing up, you know, with computing from a very early age were very difficult for newcomers to understand. You, in a way, because you've been so focused on the screen, your whole life. How do, how do you think that's informed the way you you, you deal with the world? I, I ask that question because, you know, I have young children and I'm always like, no screen time, right? You want their experience to be as 3D as possible. Like, what are your thoughts on navigating the two-dimensionality of sitting in front of a computer screen versus just being out there? I've had a lot of conversations with Caitlin already, like, how much screen time do our eventual kids have? You know, what time do they get a cell phone? Um, I, I guess I got to see the most positive version of it, which is, you know, I grew up liking music that was pretty weird by like my high school standards. I liked Bell and Sebastian and the Smiths and like nobody, like Brazil probably had like 10,000 Bell and Sebastian fans across the whole country at the time. And being online as much as I was meant that I could connect with like random people in Scotland that like grew up with Stuart Murdoch. Um, so I guess I got to see the the most positive version of it, of really getting to connect with people based on interests. 
which I hope Instagram lets you do as well. You know, like mm-hmm. if you're really into knitting or floral design, or in my case, Bernese Mountain Dogs, there is a community out there for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that community very early, you know, through mailing lists and Usenet and, you know, all the different technologies from that time. What do your parents do? Uh, my dad works, uh, or worked, he just retired, but worked for a long time in the distilled drinks industry. So he worked at Seagram's and Diageo, and most recently Beam, they make Jim Beam. It gave me the opportunity to live in Brazil and Portugal and Argentina growing up. And how about your mom? Uh, she worked in advertising when I was growing up, and now she does landscape design. Landscape design, part of the attractiveness for people about Instagram is it's stripped down nature. Do you have like an affinity towards like Danish design? My mom has a very strong sense of design, so our house, I always grew up kind of with like a nice, nicely laid out interiors that are both Brazilian, but also have that kind of modern feel as well. But it's definitely what I'm most drawn to. I took an amazing design history class at Stanford, and the Bauhaus, that phase of design was the start, the, the part that I was most drawn to, just very simple, elegant, minimal, rather than very ornate. What's something I might not know about you? Let's see, I'm a musician, although I don't play nearly as often as I'd like to today. Oh, I used to like make short films in high school, and that was um, fun and difficult. And one of the first times I've ever like thrown myself into something where it requires that like extra 20 hours to really make great. Like You can get it to work, and you can have all the raw footage you want, but if it's not edited correctly, then you might as well not have it. What's an example of a short film that you made in high school? I really enjoyed making short films about the school itself. So I would do programs on the kitchen staff or the maintenance department and see how they work day to day. And they were kind of a little bit of uh, gonzo journalism style. I had a friend, Mike Cole, and we would you know stick him in the kitchen to cook for a day or like have him try to use the buzzsaw and, uh, you know, but as a way of just showing what's going on behind the school, you know, lines. What was the last book you read? Ooh, I read a lot of books. Um, I'm finally reading Creativity, Inc., which is like the Pixar book. It's actually really interesting for me. I feel like I'm going through a similar process as Ed Catmull talks about in his book where you're no longer trying to like build this thing to you know achieve some user number. You're really starting to think of it as building the company that will sustain itself for a really long time. And that's actually a similar transition for both me and, and Kevin where you know I'm not doing engineering day and day, day to day, although yesterday we had a hack, hack day, so I actually got to code for the first time in like a year. Um, but I'm thinking about how the organization builds and I no longer have to be in every decision or every review. What other book have you read? So the other thing I'm reading, I, there's a British art author named Nick Harkaway who I love. Um, he writes science fiction, but does so with a really good sense of humor. So I'm reading a book called Angel Maker right now. I just read the light we can, All the Light We Cannot See, which I thought was really good. I did too. Why did you like it? Um, and All the Light We Cannot See, I like the like mixture of like the tinkerer with the historical overlay, which I feel somehow connected to having like family origins in Europe and having folks have left right during that uh, that time time of the of the century. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. My guest has been Mike Krieger, co-founder of Instagram. I'm Jessica Harris. This is from scratch. <laughs> <laughs>